Welcome to the History and Physical, the official medical student podcast of In Training Magazine. We're your hosts, Kevin Wong, Amol Donker, and Rohit Kakade. Hey everyone, it's Kevin Wong calling in from the comforts of my apartment in New York City. I just wanted to thank all our subscribers and listeners for their support of the History and Physical podcast and our series on entrepreneurs. Last episode, we talked with serial entrepreneur, med student, and business student Shiv Gagani. Over the next few episodes, we'll also include physician entrepreneur and editor of MedTech Boston, Dr. Jennifer Joe, and CEO and founder of Sherpa, Dr. Jay Parkinson. Finally, on behalf of my co-hosts and I, I hope everyone listening in today has a happy Thanksgiving. Wearable technology is booming right now. Jawbone up, fuel bands, Fitbits, and even Samsung getting into the market. But what about medical wearables? Is there space for technology that creates continuous streams of clinical-grade data that healthcare professionals can utilize? And how can medical students get into the entrepreneurial space? We recently chatted with Graj Gokul, entrepreneur in residence at Rock Health, co-founder of Sano Intelligence, and more. During our conversation, we get into changing digital health landscapes, entrepreneurship, and how students can contribute. Let's take a listen. Welcome, Raj, to the show. Thanks for having me, guys. Um, so I have a lot of questions for you today. Um, but before we go into those, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, and then we'll go from there. Yeah, sure. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I don't really originally come from the, the medical community, and, um, and, and my interest in health tech really evolved um, over time. Uh, my real passion and, and, you know, the way I got into the industry I'm in now uh, was through uh, basically just software. Um, so I've always been a designer and, uh, and and an amateur developer um, from a pretty young age, kind of like you you hear often. And as I imagine, uh, you know, a lot of people even who've gone to med school now were, uh, you know, maybe maybe five ten years ago. Um, it was sort of the beginning of uh, JavaScript, CSS, uh, jQuery, you know, HTML. Um, a lot of people sort of started to pick up. Uh, very amateur static page development skills, and I was one of those people. But I sort of, you know, kept with it and um, and really uh, honed uh, my skills on the on the sort of interface design and interaction design side of things. Um, ended up going to business school at uh, at the Warden School at UPenn, um, mainly uh, just to to sort of explore all the things that I was interested in. There were so many industries that that I could see myself getting into. And then over the next few years after graduating, that's that's when I started to to narrow in my focus um, on exactly where I wanted to apply software and where I thought it would be uh, highest leverage, so to speak. So um, I uh, uh, ended up sort of at the nexus of uh, finance and business and uh, and technology, which was venture capital, um, and. I, you know, I imagine most people have some idea what venture capital is, but just to give you a quick primer, it's it's basically, you know, uh, firms that take 
large investments from pensions and university endowments and whoever has money to invest, and they allocate that money into early stage uh, and sometimes mid stage startups. Uh, and and you know for the past 20, 30 years, uh, it's been primarily technology startups. So I was at General Catalyst Partners in Boston. Um, they manage you know one or two billion dollars and invest across lots of different categories. And I'm sure you guys know that you know Boston has historically been a pretty um, you know a, a pretty uh, I guess I guess you could say a hub uh, in in a, in a few different decades for medical innovation, um, but but not so much anymore. Now uh, most of the investments that are made out of there are are in software. But when I was there, I saw a lot of money and a lot of development and design talent um, and, and really great minds going into uh, what I would consider digital sugar water. Um, and so, you know, maybe that term makes sense to you guys, but in consumer products, you know, you have products that are actually useful to, to people. You know, I'm looking at my alarm clock right now. It's very useful to me. It wakes me up every day. It has a purpose. And then, in you know, in my fridge, I have food that's very useful to me. It has, you know, uh, it's calorically rich, and it, it provides me nutrients, and, and, it's, and it's healthy for me. And then there's just sugar water. There's, there's stuff that's it's there to you know to get people to buy it and and waste time and make other people money and you know I think that is um, that's not an unpopular sentiment out here uh, mm-hmm. I think a lot of people in technology are very um, are very done with putting all of their talents toward digital sugar water and so you know me being one of them um, when I was in Boston I decided to start focusing on what I thought would be uh, the next big areas of innovation for software um, and hardware, and uh, and centered on healthcare uh, primarily because um, you know at the time uh, my mom was was and still is a, a type two pre diabetic or a diabetic, um, and uh, my my dad is a smoker. Uh, heart disease runs through my family. I mean, basically every kind of condition you could you could imagine that's behavioral related uh, yeah. it runs in my family. So. Um, you know, I uh, I started thinking about how I could apply all of the the, the great, very persuasive, very um, uh, you know, in some ways powerful uh, techniques that have been developed to get people to click on ads and figure out how to turn those toward um, toward you know a, a greater good in medicine. And my approach to that with with my first company was uh, a company called Sano. Um, the the idea being creating a uh, basically a very tight feedback loop on nutrition and exercise uh, and um, and 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 kind of uh, giving people a better feel for what they're doing right or wrong in a much more on demand way than uh, than kind of medicine has provided in the past through chemistry diagnostics and you know the technology was not um, was not completely novel. Uh, you guys probably are aware of um, you know, like Dexcom, Medtronic, uh, chemical sensors, uh, primarily glucose sensors, for diabetics, um, and uh, a lot of the time they're they're large probes, you know, a centimeter or an inch long, pretty painful, but uh, you know, provide a pretty rich set of data around glucose for diabetics. The idea here was, you know, make a sensor that doesn't feel like a needle. Um, so we used a microneedle. Uh, uh, sensor array functionalized pretty much the same way that a that a glucose sensor is functionalized as a as a sensor, and um, and and decided to start building toward 
multiplexing that sensor and making it sense for lots of things. So glucose, electrolytes, um, pretty much anything that can be sensed through interstitial fluid. And um, you know, I'm sure, uh, Roy, if you if you went to UCSD, you're you're very familiar with this type of technology, and it's been it's been tried and, and sort of uh, uh, played around with in the past. But I think the the idea was with Bluetooth low energy, um, it's easier to do this stuff in a battery efficient way. Uh, smartphones are everywhere now. There's ways to process that data, and hopefully we can make it useful to uh, an everyday person rather than people who have existing chronic diseases or need to be you know, monitored for, for very high-risk situations. So um, sorry, that's a really long-winded um, way of getting my background. Uh, now I, I, so what, I, what I'm doing now and kind of how I met you guys is uh, I'm an entrepreneur in residence at Rock Health, which is an incubator, uh, and it's actually the incubator that we started out of. And um, uh, basically I advise companies in the portfolio uh, and outside of the portfolio on product roadmap and strategy, uh, fundraising, um, and uh, and recruiting. Um, just because sort of I've I've been through all of that in my company. Right, and and you were very early on with the whole. Um, uh, I guess I don't want to call it a trend because it's still it's still evolving pretty pretty actively. Um, but you were one of the first wave of companies that was looking at how to put data and information in the hands of consumers, right? Like this was before Jawbone uh, or Fitbit or um, even Nike came up, right? Yeah, yeah, that's true. Uh, yeah, and, and I would even add that uh, uh, even just the, the basic protocols for making some of this hardware exist didn't really, uh, didn't really take hold. So, so Bluetooth 4.0, which, which I mentioned earlier, um, a very low uh, low power protocol for wireless data transmission um, that allows for the types of battery life that you see in in those Jawbone bands and the Fitbits and things like that. That protocol didn't even exist back then. But I think one thing, um, you know, just to get right into sort of advice uh, and and I think a framework for for what problems can be solved and and how to start companies at the right time is that uh, if there's a great argument for a technology or a protocol or a precursor set of software uh, existing within the next year or two uh, because the, the demand will be, will be there for it, um, it probably will exist. It will come up. Some service provider, and, and this, is, this is how fast software and hardware is moving, is that you have to basically make those bets and, uh, and, and hope that things play out. So, um, you know, I think the, the, the few trends that we capitalized on or, or tried to, um, you know, sit at the nexus of were uh, the proliferation of smart devices. So, you know, the penetration was just this, this crazy exponential curve where pretty soon you could take for granted that everyone in the United States would have some kind of smart device. Uh, and that's, that's meaningful, right? Um, because at that point you start asking, well, you know, what things are valuable when you have basically a computer that was as powerful as the computer that I grew up on, on a large desktop, in every pocket in all of America, following where everyone goes, and uh, and, and being able to notify them of, of things, and, and so on and so forth. And uh, some of these ideas are, are kind of obvious now, but at the time it, it seemed like, uh, you know, it, it was worth sitting down and thinking about what that really meant. Um, and then the same thing was true of, of sort of where that technology would be best placed. I think just uh, intuitively speaking, back then, um, you know, we had seen for five or ten years industry after industry get 
revolutionized by software um, pretty rapidly, right? Um, so, you know, we were all reading books until we weren't. We were reading Kindles, and and you know, we were we were all watching TV through cable providers until we weren't. We were watching Netflix, um, and and these things happen very very fast. And I think uh, again, it it causes you to sort of when you really internalize the idea that that industries can can be toppled so quickly because software is just such a powerful, um, sort of efficient and, and easily prototyped and, and nimble force, you you, you kind of have to, uh, to to try and make bets before they materialize, if that makes sense. There's some interesting points that I bring up there with software kind of being able to revolutionize industries pretty quickly. Um, you know, with a little, little bit of an insider perspective here as a med student, there's a lot of kind of like, red tape, I would say, when it comes to initiating change within a medical practice environment. And wearables and all the kind of um, kind of like health data that we could leverage, like healthcare providers could leverage from patients, that would be great if we had a way to um, incorporate it into our practices. You know, uh, I think Epic, the most popular uh, electronic health record platform in the nation, recently released, or not recently, but they released an API, a one-way API that allowed um, allowed wearables to finally like import data into the electronic health record. And e- despite that API being there now, we're still not seeing a lot of hospitals incorporate that data, or a lot of doctors at least incorporate that data into their daily practice because it's just not it's not just it's not just done, I guess. Right. Like, what are your thoughts on that? Kind of changing that kind of culture, I guess. Yeah, well, you know, it, it's going to take time, right? And I think one of the one of the big uh, distinctions around the healthcare industry that you just have to again internalize is it's a uh, uh, things have to be failure proof in healthcare, right? And and uh, you know th- that's an obvious platitude in and of itself, but uh, when you really think about it, it's 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 uh, it's akin to uh, space travel, right? So if you're going to engineer something to go into space, it literally has to be the most efficient. Uh, you know, uh, utility to weight ratio because every single pound that you launch into space has to be, uh, you know, extremely versatile and useful. Otherwise, it's not worth the rocket fuel. Rocket fuel is very expensive, uh, and you only get one shot. It has to be completely failure-proof because once it's out there in space, you can't just bring it back if it if it fails, right? Uh, and so that's why you know what NASA creates is not um, it, it's not extremely complicated, but it's failure-proof. And the same thing has to happen in healthcare for something to really take hold. Uh, things have to be failure-proof. And, you know, so where, where Netflix, when they first came out, they probably had outages and, and, and downtime all the time, right? And we were able to, to stomach that as consumers because it's not really mission critical that we, that we see, you know, the next week's episode of House or whatever, right? But uh, in, in healthcare, if, especially given the cost is so bloated across the system, if you're going to spend an extra incremental dollar – it better save you uh, a lot of dollars. Certainly, it can't just be break even, right? Most players across the board are trying to reduce their costs, so it better save you, you know, more dollars than you put in. And then you have to look at all of the options you have. And like you said, there's so many data sets, there's so many tools, there's so many medical devices, um, there, there's so many, you know, very uh, ambitious and optimistic doctors uh, like yourselves, uh, you know, entrepreneurs like myself software uh, folks like we see across the board who say, oh, I have, I have a better mousetrap, that you ultimately have just an infinite set of options that each have a certain cost assigned to them, 
and then a certain expected outcome about how much uh, how much they're going to save and how much they're going to improve outcomes, and then over what timeline. And so the, the the very few people who are in charge of making these decisions have to basically prioritize all that. And before you say, well, it's worth uh, it's worth it for Kaiser to you know take all of the Fitbit data from their entire population and, and devote you know brain power to figuring out how to use it. Um, you know, first of all, they have to make sure that all of that step data or accelerometer data is actually accurate. And I think we've gotten to that level now after acceler- after 3D accelerometer- accelerometers have been in the mass market for, you know, 10, 15 years. Um, then you have to uh, validate whether it's actually going to be useful, right, and whether whether you can put something in place in, in the near term that outweighs other cost reduction or outcome improvement measures um, and, and whether that cost is worth it, right? So uh, in general, I think... This is it's it's been something that I've had to really come to terms with uh, the idea that you know there's some magical force or some very evil person or some uh, you know uh, luddite uh, or group of luddites who are keeping things from happening. In reality, it's it, the responsibility is on us to um, to just provide the value in an outsized way uh, that that beats out all the other options out there. Right, and I, it sounds simple once you think about it, but you you, li- you literally you just got to put yourself in the in the shoes of the person who ends up making the purchasing decision or the implementation decision for a piece of technology, and say, are they going to make it their first priority today to implement that? Otherwise, you have an uphill battle. I definitely agree, um, and I can say like you know you can. So I I completely agree with with what you said, and if we look at medical apps, for example, when I like peruse the um, the Android app store. Um, which is, when it comes to medical apps, is, I would say, significantly less impressive than the iOS app store. It seems like developers, medical developers at least, tend to prefer um, the iOS store. But regardless, what happens is when I download these apps, you can see that there, there hasn't been much thought to design, like good design, because it seems like these apps require a lot of interaction on the term of the physician using it. And for physicians who are already crunched for time, it's it makes it a hard sell. Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, and, and, you know, those are – so you made a, actually a good point that sort of just – a segue from what we just talked about. Like, you don't really know uh, how long an app is going to take you uh, to, to interact with and work into your workflow until you do it, right? And – and so there's there's a cost to even evaluating all the options out there, and this is this is part of and, and again it's in a, a zero tolerance environment, right? Um, if I'm you know if I'm admitted to an ER, it doesn't it doesn't ha- it's not it's not acceptable to me to have a lower standard of care even by a, a percentage point uh, if you could assign something to to quality of care um, to to know that you're testing some new app. Right, that doesn't help me as a patient, and it doesn't help you to know that you know one extra patient died or or, or survived because of, because of one app. You have to have validation around these things, and this this is what clinical trials are for. This is what pilots are for. Um, but again, there there's just those are inherent bottlenecks because they're run by people, and and you know the hope is that uh, I th- I think. To, to sort of zoom out a little bit, um, the, I think the hope is that certain categories of products surface themselves to be uh, useful enough to warrant uh, distribution, right? And, and, and that's just sort of 
the nature of a very immature industry or an immature trend is that we haven't even categorized what's good yet, right, or what's important yet. And um, and we're just starting to do that, right? Yeah. And, and, and to, your, to your point of, you know, the App Store, I think um, – even even if let's say you and I categorize what's important, or uh, or we have, you know, some some sort of community wide acceptance of what categories of apps are important, Apple, in their triaging of people through the App Store and their presentation of apps in the App Store, they don't have you know, they have eighty different classes of apps outside of health tech to focus on, right? And so they're they're not focused on bringing the best. Um, the best health apps or, or you know, uh, medical apps to the surface, um, and we have to go and find them. So I think separately from all this, there's also just a, an, you know, an application and software discovery problem that, that also sort of compounds all of this. Yeah, definitely. So shifting gears a little bit, earlier you mentioned that you are an entrepreneur in residence at Rock Health. Um, Rock Health obviously is one of the most popular, if not the, if not the most popular, healthcare-centric uh, startup incubators that there are in America right now. And it's kind of seen as like a gold standard. If you're able to get in Rock Health, you probably have a really solid product. Um, so could you tell us a little bit about what it's like to be an entrepreneur in residence at Rock Health? And uh, maybe, if you can, like see if you can recall any instance, instances where you had med students or physicians helping out in the product development cycle there. Sure. Um, so, yeah, I mean, entrepreneur in residence is, is a role that uh, that different incubators and and venture capital firms and um, basically any any hub of startups or tech will have, uh, and, and it's really just a glorified kind of parking spot um, for entrepreneurs to, <laughs> to 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 like I said with, with all Free of these companies, right? all of these products. Yeah, you know, it's a little bit like that. Um, all, all of these companies and products and, and teams and, um, and and ideas coming through tech so quickly, uh, it, it, it's really hard to just sit in, you know, your living room and read TechCrunch and get a good feel for it. You have to get out there. You have to meet people. And uh, and I think that's, that's uh, a lot of what the value, you know, from a personal perspective of being an EIR is, is just... Um, being able to meet a lot of really great companies and start to just build a lot of pattern recognition and, and stay very current on, on uh, you know, what new trends, what new companies are coming out there. Um, and, you know, it's, it's a personal kind of passion of mine to just advise companies because it's a really difficult process to, to, to start something from nothing. Um, pretty much it doesn't matter what your personality type is. You will be overwhelmed, and uh, you did underestimate the amount of work uh, and passion and blood and sweat that it takes. So, uh, you know, it, for me, mentorship and, and advising is a little bit of, um, you know, giving back, and, and I think it's just good for the community. Um, and uh, to answer your question about, you know, I think physicians providing value and, and advising on product um, – it's it you know it happens all the time. Uh, I think I think definitely some of uh, or most of the most successful and nimble uh, startups that I've seen um, come through Rock Health or uh, or be affiliated with Rock Health in some way were run by a combination of of doctors, 
and software folks and or hardware folks. Um, there's just, you know, there's just so much expertise that, that, that we don't have uh, as, as, as technologists uh, that doctors have to be there to, to provide, right? Um, and, and a lot of it has to do with just a simple holistic understanding of the human body and the, the most up-to-date literature on what is a clinically validated, um, you know, therapeutic or, uh, or, or, or drug or process and, and what isn't. And then second is, uh, so in, in, in technology development, generally speaking, uh, when you have the ability to iterate a product so quickly, it becomes very clear that the first priority should be knowing your user really, really well. Because for all intents and purposes, if you know your user really, really well, you know exactly, you have the, the capability of delivering to them pretty much any product, and you can do it very quickly. Uh, and, it, and if you... And a, and a big point of differentiation becomes knowing your re- user really well, because if you don't do that as well as another person, then that other person will make a better product. And uh, and all that is to say, you know, in, in medicine, oftentimes the users are physicians, and uh, in the same way that in consumer tech, uh, most of the most successful products were started by uh, people who built products for themselves. Uh, in the same way, you know, in med tech, a lot of the best products are built by doctors for doctors, because it just really helps to have that sense of empathy of, you know, uh, how will someone interact with this product every day? Um, and, and then also I think there is, this is, this is the more sort of superficial but also practical uh, aspect of, of being a, a doctor founder is um, there's just a, a, an amount of credibility that comes with that, right? Um, you know, anything that... Uh, Anything that's going to be mission critical, um, anything that could potentially be applied to really high-risk situations, uh, you know, diagnostics or, um, you know, anything that's used in, in ICUs or, or critical care, uh, all of that stuff is very scary to investors, and it's very scary to anyone who's not a doctor um, to, to make a decision and, and become a stakeholder for and to have a doctor uh, who, who's sitting in that seat every day uh, and is and is signed off on it is is quite honestly it's it's pretty valuable. So I've I've seen a lot of doctors have a lot of success um, and be really helpful in the community just by being you know CMOs and oftentimes even being part time CMOs or uh, and so saying just chief medical officer um, or being consultant uh, CMOs or interim CMOs um, and. Uh, and, and then, and then, oftentimes, you know, just just doing sort of research work for startups to to help with the exploratory process of where to fit in, just because it's it's so hard to empathize with the users when you haven't gone through med school and you haven't you know worked uh, you know as a clinician before. Yeah. yeah. Speaking yeah. of med school, um, I mean, in the last few years, there has been an increasing number, just amongst my personal uh, circle of friends and acquaintances of people actually taking years off of med school to pursue a company um, a lot through uh, like-minded accelerators like uh, Rock Health or Blueprint Health. Um, And I was wondering whether you saw something similar amongst the applicants or the people you have advised um, as part of Rock Health? Yeah. um, You know, it it happens, it happens quite a bit, actually probably less than I, than I would like. Um, because to me, it, it seems like a very riskless proposition. Uh, oftentimes, you can go back to med school uh, later on if you want to. It's sort of the same as, as dropping out of uh, 
or, or taking a leave from undergrad. You know, if if Bill Gates didn't leave from undergrad, if Zuckerberg didn't leave uh, from Harvard, you know, uh, their companies just wouldn't have wouldn't have happened. And um, and it it it's I don't know. It, it to me it it feels like a very um, responsible thing to do and uh, and a very riskless proposition, riskless bet. Uh, as long as you have something that you're that you're willing to really put the sweat in for, so I think a good example, uh, and and really one of my favorite entrepreneurs, one of my favorite companies is um, is so Sean Duffy is a he was in an MD uh, MBA program at Harvard, which is you know an amazing program obviously, and um, and became very passionate about the idea of uh, behavioral change uh, as the next block, big blockbuster drug. Uh, and started a company called Omada Health, which basically took a landmark um, clinical study around taking pre-diabetics uh, and running them through, uh, you know, basically a, a software program for affecting their nutrition and fitness regimen, um, and built, you know, built just really, really well-designed software that that formalized and uh, and automated that whole process. Um, went on leave from MD MBA at, at Harvard, and I guess technically is still on leave from there. But you know, it's been four years. They've raised you know like almost thirty million dollars. They're wildly successful. They've had great results, uh, and it honestly wouldn't have happened if Sean wasn't there. Uh, he, you know, he he knew the language to to sell to employers and and um, and and validate that that the program was you know uh, physician certified and and. Uh, and used kind of uh, the same standard of uh, clinical validation that most doctors would expect if they're going to prescribe something. Um, and, and he also knew how to navigate the reimbursement space very, very well. Uh, and, you know, I'm sure if you asked him, he would say, absolutely, it was worth it. But that being said, you know, Omada's had a, a very roller coaster of a time over the last four years, as any startup will have, um, trying to start from scratch. And, you know, it, it, I think it just comes down to whether you're, whether it's in your bones that you, that you really feel there's a, there's a problem that needs to be solved. Um, and I think oftentimes that'll, uh, that will give you the answer in and of itself. I think, I think if you would ask, you know, Bill Gates, did it make you know? Did it make sense for you to drop out of Harvard, or how did it feel when you were making that decision? You would say, "Well, it was obvious. There was no other choice," you know. And I think um, probably the biggest the biggest um, the biggest problem that I've seen with med students is that they you know you guys are working so so hard. Like I don't even know how you guys have time to do this podcast. <laughs> No, that's funny you should say that because I have an exam on Monday. <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, you know, I, it's it's you guys have very very limited time to even explore ideas and options uh, to to evaluate a, a, an idea and whether it's worth quitting for or, or taking a leave for. I would say not only is time uh, like a limiting factor, but it's kind of also a cultural thing. When you enter medicine, it's very risk averse and it's very permission based. You always do things when you're told. You don't do things when you don't have someone else higher up giving you some kind of approval. And entrepreneurialism is kind of just the opposite. You have to be willing to take risks. You have to go in territory that no one else has explored. And kind of that, you know, if you're able, like Sean Duffy, to, to balance being both a future physician and being an entrepreneur, you've kind of, like, 
you've mastered both sides of the coin. Yeah. Well, now, to be clear, I don't think Sean is going to go back to being a physician ever. I think he's now definitely a lifelong entrepreneur. Yeah. Uh, but also, so, you know, it's funny you mentioned that. So risk aversion, right? Um, some people some people go into med school because of risk aversion to an extent. It's, a, it's an extremely, um, you know, uh, lucrative, stable, well-respected career, right? Um, and it always has been, right? And... Um, and that's that's not a bad reason to go into medicine, I think, uh, because you are going to be doing really great things with your time. But oftentimes, that is amongst the top five reasons that I think some people go to med school. I almost wanted to go to med school for that reason. That's so <laughs> a good reason to go to med school, right? And then you have people who uh, went to med school because people are sick and they need to be cured. And you know, we we have a lower quality. Uh, and and you know quantity or or uh, or length of life then is theoretically possible, and we want to solve those problems. And I think if 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 the first one is your was your original motivation, and it continues to be your motivation, chances are you're right. You know, entrepreneurship is the diametric you know opposite of that, and you're not going to do it. Uh, if your goal is to prolong life and do it in the most efficient way, um, and 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 you know solve sickness uh, in whatever way you think uh, is, is most, um, you know, core to your being, I guess. Uh, there's there's a million ways to do that. You can do that in policy and government. You know, you can become Surgeon General. You can go and uh, start a company. You can start a software company. You can start uh, a different model of, of doing medical practices. You know, you can do it as a doctor later in your career. You can start medical. I mean, there's a million ways, right? Some of those ways happen to be very... Um, very timely right now because of the way that that software is proliferating. And if you think that some, you know, one of your passions lies in that area, then yeah, I don't see why you shouldn't, uh, you know, go on leave from med school and go try it. Yeah. Um, okay. Other questions we might have. If you if you were if a med student were to come up to you and say, I have this really good idea for X Y Z app or software or whatever. What would be the top three tips you would give this med student? Top three tips. Um, let's see. Uh, I think... So we, we touched on it at the beginning of the interview, but um, there's, there's a set of questions, like a, I guess you could say like a diagnostic algorithm you should go through for your idea, right? And, and again, we touched it at the beginning, but it's... it's the, the biggest questions and the biggest things you can knock out of the way really, really quickly are who's going to pay for this thing, right? And have you talked to that person or maybe a, st a statistically significant population of those people? And is, it, is this thing something that they're, that's, you know, very top of mind to them? Or let's, you know, if you want to put, draw a line in the sand, is it, is it one of the first five things that they that they need in their life and that they're ready to to uh, to put money toward if if the answer is you know to one two or three are are no um, then you should probably just move tangentially see if there's a different a different category you can put this app into that that all of a sudden you're you have a different person who's paying for it you know it's not an insurance company it's employers or it's not employers it's direct to consumers or it's directly to doctors. I mean, whatever it is, 
that I think tends to be the biggest roadblock that that is the easiest to overcome uh, is just interview the people that are going to be paying for your thing, and then so I'll, I'll just bucket that into into that's one piece of advice there. The second piece of advice is um, uh, even if you don't know how to build software. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm predicating this on the idea that you said this person has an app idea, not an app. Yeah. Uh, even if you don't know how to build software, there, it, it, you know, having number one some technical uh, literacy is extremely valuable, and there are really easy ways to educate yourself on that. There's a, especially from a design perspective, there's a site called Design Lab that you can go to and literally go through a, a very quick four-week uh, program for very cheap and be a, a pretty solid designer and have a pretty solid understanding for how to work uh, with developers with a with sort of a, a design thinking process in place. And it will really hone what your product is going to be. You should just go to Design Lab. It will teach you more about, uh, about you know, what your, your, your first um, goals should be in evaluating an idea than I can teach you in, in, the, in the podcast. Um, and then, uh, and then from there, you know, you, you just want to recruit people that are like-minded with you, but who are the experts in that in in those technical fields, right? So, you know, if if you're going to have technical literacy, but you're going to be the medical mind in this thing, um, you still are going to need uh, developers. To find developers that are passionate about solving the same problem that you are. Um, and, and and that being said, so. Before you do that, you don't really need to uh, build a full product or raise money to build that full product uh, to learn something about whether your idea is good or not. You can prototype it literally on a piece of paper, uh, you know. Or if you know Photoshop and you've used Design Lab, you you have some understanding of design. You can just create what are called you know wireframes, mockups. Just make a non-functional version of what your software is going to look like. And then again, like I said earlier, just Run it by the people that are going to be responsible for uh, making the purchasing decision and see what they have to say. Uh, chances are you'll learn 80% of what you need to learn about whether uh, this is a good idea or not or how to make it better through that very easy, simple, free, riskless process of mock-ups you know, and putting them up against the customer then you will, if you go and raise money and build the product and go out there and try and sell it and then fall on your face, right? Yeah. So, uh, you know, that's that's like, I think that's more than three things. <laughs> <laughs> Those three really good things. All right, Raj, well, you've given us a lot of good information for our listeners. But before you leave, we have this little tradition that we like to do on this podcast. And we end by asking each one of our guests a would-you-rather question. All right. We're pretty much bringing it back to sixth grade here. but uh, <laughs> So this is our would you rather question for you. Would you rather live on the most advanced alien civilization in the universe for half an hour or, <laughs> or live permanently on Earth? Oh, my God. Wait, so <laughs> do, do, I, do I die after that half an hour? No, 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 no. Like you, you're there. I guess, I guess you get transported oh. there for half an hour, and then you come back. And if but I like live... you can, you can only take in what you can take in for half an hour, and like this, 
you're gonna have a lot of trouble getting around because there's no guarantee that they speak that English. Is, by the way, this, <laughs> this is the best "Would you rather" question I've ever. I've been on long road trips, and we play this game all the time. Um, wow. And then, and then, so the second part of it is, if I live on Earth uh, permanently, I, I would live forever. Would I be? You'd live forever, and you'd like see all the technological developments the human race comes up with. You get to see it all. I think I would do the second one because, you know, oh. yeah, you know, I'd, I'd live forever. I'd probably see us. Well, all right, so this this has to do with my optimism about the human race. I think we <laughs> will become the most advanced species in the universe, and so it's just a matter of time before you get not just half an hour, but unlimited time. Yeah, sweet. All right, well, thanks for coming on for the show. Yeah, guys, thanks for having me. Um, and. Um, I think, you know, for, for listeners or for you guys, uh, if you go to the Rock Health website or if you uh, want to contact me, my information's readily available and I'm always here to help. All right. Sounds good. All right, guys. Thanks. So, yeah, that was it. Um, awesome. uh, we'll cut it there. Unfortunately, Kevin had to leave a little bit early. Some unexpected things came up at home. So what we'll do probably is he'll like parrot my questions and then it'll be like as if you're answering him. So it doesn't look like it was just you and I. All right. uh, Sounds good. Talking to you. So how many, how many episodes of this have you done already? Uh, We have done, this is our second. (laughs) Okay. Awesome. Yeah. I'm happy. happy. So uh, Kevin in his email, you know, asked, uh, are there other people from Rock Health portfolio? I'm happy to to send out some feelers over over the Rock Health like Facebook group and stuff, and just see if people are interested. Um, it's really cool what you guys are doing, and and you know you're asking great questions. Yeah, that'd be great. You know, like tech and medicine is a whole. It's a new thing for med students. I kind of alluded it, alluded to it earlier with my comment about a permission based uh, culture in medicine. Like for med students. Like, I can look at all my friends, and I'm the only one in my class who's very aware of the things that are happening in tech and medicine. And everyone else is just kind of like, oh, I want to be a cardiologist. Oh, I want to be a plastic surgeon. Like, they just have these kind of one-track minds that are set up because of the culture of medicine. And kind of exploration outside of that is very hard, unless you have people like you coming out to the medical community and saying, like, hey, this is an option. You can be a CMO and, like, create really cool products that will help both physicians and patients. Right. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm happy to help in that mission however I can because I, I definitely do, you know, it's been a few years now uh, that I've been at this, and I've, 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 I started out very young and very, um, very rash and basically just yelling at people, why aren't you joining us? Why aren't you doing this? Like, you know, what's <laughs> And, and, and now I understand more of the nuance of, of how difficult it is, you know, just given, again, you know, how, how little time you guys have, um, other expectations that people have for you, and uh, and also just the uncertainty of all of this is pretty unsettling uh, a lot of the time. But um, I, I think it's a great mission to try and find the people who are ready to go and make that leap or, or try and provide value wherever they can and then, and then you know, connect them in. Um, I have a few people, I'm, I have to run right now, but I have a few people that I'm going to introduce you to who are also in med school. I mean, I, really the only other people that I've known uh, from across the country that are in med school, but also very keyed into uh, what's going on right now. And, um, and you know, you guys should just connect and, and, you know, be helpful to each other as well. Yeah, that'd be great. We really appreciate that. Awesome. Well, uh, oh, so by the way, one, another thing, maybe you can edit this in or something, but uh, 
there's there's two books. So one is uh, The Innovator's Prescription by Clayton Christensen. Oh, yes. And another one is um, is The Creative Destruction of Medicine by Eric Topol. Mm-hmm. And those two books are probably, you know, in a weekend's reading, I think enough for anyone to be convinced of of, of the, uh, you know, the inevitability and the power of what's about to happen uh, and the opportunity of what's about to happen. And yeah. so, you know, when you were asking, you know, what's your advice to their uh, to, to, to people, you know, maybe you can just edit that in there somewhere. You can say, oh, well, we talked about it before, we talked about it afterwards, or something like that. All right. Sounds good. Thanks so much for your time. All right, Rohit. Take care. All right. Take care, Raj. Bye. The HP Podcast is a podcast by students for students. We're looking to evolve with you, so feel free to reach out to us via email, Twitter, Tumblr, via the show notes, or on the in-training website. If you like us, please consider subscribing on iTunes and giving us a five-star rating. The H&P is a member of Vocalis, a podcast network for medical students. Please listen to our partners at vocalisnetwork.wix.com listen.